Hey, Jeff. Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Doing well, thank you. This is day two of our fourth annual 12 Days of Podcasts. The never-ending telethon that is our holiday gift to you. Yeah, we wanted to do something for anybody who's traveling. Anybody who is working, if you're the one person working during the holidays. Anybody who is just trying to avoid your family while you're at home all under one roof. This is when we flood the market. We give you guys 12 episodes in 12 days. And, and if you've been rocking for us for a while... Welcome back. If you're new, we want to say, hey, we do a podcast that is almost 300 episodes in that has never, never been about grabbing headlines. No. It's not about selling our guests out if they say something that, oh, you know, could be seen as like towing a line. We never want it to be something that does a disservice to the person who sits between us and shares their life story. And given that, I'm sure some of you have, have shown up today because you saw the news that Cord Jefferson made. Yeah, there's like, there, there is the headline that came from this interview. And, and by the way, that was never our intention. We never. never. We never wanted to make a bigger moment out of the fact that Cord Jefferson does not believe in dinosaurs. I mean, it's just a big deal that Cord Jefferson would come over here and like spend some time with us. And for, for sure. For us to exploit this headline for personal gain like for clout no never that'd be pathetic never. like if we were to sit here and talk about how two-time 2019 wga award nominee writer for succession the good place and of course watchman where he co-wrote episode six the extraordinary being cord jefferson doesn't believe in dinosaurs that's, for like more than just the moment you have yeah if you think that's what we do you have certainly underestimated us well yeah you've gotten us very wrong i think it's it's we would we would Never. I think it's frankly disgusting mm -hmm. to assume that we would take some quote of Cord Jefferson not believing that dinosaurs ever walked to the face of the earth. And we're not going to like send it to the shade room no, oh, or what? say cheese TV. What? And say, hey, Cord Jefferson doesn't believe in dinosaurs. No. Isn't that crazy? There's, uh, uh, to even imagine that we would take a video clip from the episode that we have up on YouTube.com slash It's The Real and yeah. make it a moment. We have better things Come to do. Come on. Like, and plus, like, how would we even chop it down? Like, we have, we have an hour and a half interview with him. This is, this is frankly demeaning to everything that we have built to this point. Pathetic. We are, we are not asking an artist of Cord Jefferson stature to come over here. Like, he has a full life. What? what? And we got into all that. And then, like, he's the, promoting an album, by the way, Purple Haze 2, that comes out next week. He's not here to dive into the, the muddy waters of, like, conspiracy whether theories about dinosaurs, whether dinosaurs existed exist. or not. Come like, on. and that we, come would, on. that we would make a big deal out of that. Jeff, I'm frankly, I'm disappointed that we had to even discuss this to start this podcast. I, in no way, wanted to bring this energy here today well thank you for addressing it yeah well and and you too and we want to thank all the um people who who ignored those headlines out there yeah you know that is not our purpose that's not what we stand on this is a family podcast yeah the, like we're not tmz we're not sending our stuff to tmz not at all not the least of which would be cord jefferson and that dinosaur talk doesn't believe in them and that's fine. <sighs> that's him. Jeff, let's, yeah. let's reset mm -hmm. and start off the 12 days in the best way we know how. Jeff, who's on the podcast today? Cord Jefferson. What's he talking about? Dinosaurs. <laughs> Jeff, when do you want to get into it? <laughs> right now. Yo, what up? It's Eric, a.k.a. Snowflake the Dolphin, a.k.a. Flippin' Work. Yo, what up? It's Jeff, a.k.a. Hit him with the ooh, hit him with the yuh, a.k.a. Batman. <laughs> 
Court Jefferson. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your third favorite podcast, The Waste of Time with It's The Real. Court, what's happening? What's going on? Everything's good. Thank you so much for having us in your home. Thank you guys for coming. Oh man, it is our pleasure. The crazy thing is, so we show up here, and you are expecting some guy to like check out the. Um, you have you have a couple like rain yeah, situations it's, going it's, on. It's pouring rain right now. Uh, it's the worst rain it's, we've had since I've moved into this place a few months ago. And so there's a couple leaks. There's a leak in my bedroom closet, and there's a leak here in the in the living room, which I'm disappointed by. I'm sorry, it's really embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, no, the quite all right. I have, like, five people over my house, and there's like leaking. Everywhere. Well, we show up. And we've never been to your apartment and or your house rather. This is a house. We're in LA. Yeah. And I did not tell you that our photographers were coming as well, but you greeted them like you had invited them. No, I just and I like you knew with you. Yeah, you were just like been here to fuck with me around yeah. the house. Right? You know, I opened the door with open arms. Yeah, you were just like, hey, like yeah. anybody's welcome here. They seem friendly. Yeah. <laughs> So like, is, that's L.A., man. It's the, that's the difference between L.A. and New York. Which is what? In L.A., when you see two people as two strangers walking up to your front door, you just open the door. You're like, hey, welcome, man. This room for everybody. You sound like a cult leader. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We were aware of your writing, but the first time that another person said something about your writing for us early on was our friend Foster Kamer. Oh, yeah. Who was singing your praises like... Foster. Yeah, yeah, to the end Big of... yeah. To Foster. Man. Yeah. How did you end up working at, at Gawker? Uh, so I used to be at... Good magazine. Do you guys remember Good? I only remember it because I just read an article that you did. <laughs> I wasn't like, a yeah. big Good reader though. Yeah. So Good. So I was at Good magazine with a few of my really good friends from 2010 to 2012, and I was there with like people like Ann Friedman and Amanda Hess, Tim Fernholtz, like a bunch of great journalists, Nona Willis Aronowitz. Um, I don't want to leave anybody out. Megan Greenwell's ex still. Everybody's great. <laughs> um, and then we all got laid off because they decided to shutter the magazine and not do a magazine anymore. So I had already written a couple freelance pieces for Gawker because I was a big fan of theirs. And that was when AJ Delario was running it. Mm-hmm. And Emma Carmichael was his number two. And That was a Deadspin or that was a Gawker? No, that was a Gawker. That was, by, that was when AJ had taken over mm-hmm. Gawker by then and brought Emma with him. So I was like scrambling for a job. And I reached out to AJ and was just like, hey, do you, like, do you guys have anything full time? Because I really liked the process of freelancing for you guys and I, and I need a job now. And so uh, AJ and Emma flew out here like a month later and offered me a full-time full-time job we had like the job interview out here and we went to sunset tower <laughs> and like i had heard rumors of how gawker got down i had never like met those people but like it was like those people <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean <laughs> i mean it was I, it felt it just felt like a different you know i was working at a place called good magazine you know what i mean and it was like a lot of hippies and we just like and we had like it was like very feel good it was fe- it felt very la you know yeah it was mm-hmm. a lot of green juices and like yoga and meditation and then i then aj and emma flew out here and like aj my job interview was we met at the sunset tower hotel and aj had the um the Gawker corporate card, and he ordered two giant seafood towers immediately for three people, and then invited all of his friends who to, come to the job interview. And he was like, "I got the Gawker corporate card," so my job interview was like meeting like a revolving door of AJ's friends who he just like bought tons of drinks and seafood towers for, and like for over the course of like five hours, 
and everybody got very drunk and ate a lot of like crab legs and shrimp cocktail. And you got the job. Yeah. And then the next day, I was like, "Did I get hired?" And he was like, "Yeah, man." He's like, "We'll send you the letter tomorrow." Like, okay. Let's start at the very beginning. Yeah. Where are you originally from? I was born in Tucson, and immediately after I was born, my family moved overseas. So my mom, my dad was based in Riyadh for. Well, my family's gonna be based in Riyadh for my dad's job. But my mother and I had didn't get visas right away, so we had to spend like six months or a year in Greece. And so we lived in Greece for like my first year of life, mm. and then moved to Saudi Arabia, where my dad was working for Hughes Aircraft Company. Yeah, I was a contracts attorney for them, and so he was based in Riyadh. So we lived in Riyadh until I was like five, and then we moved back to Tucson from Riyadh, um, and then so I was there from like five to eighteen, and even though it was like very early in my life I think that living in Saudi Arabia helped me in Tucson because Tucson is a very homogenous place it, it, you know there's diversity but it's like white people are Latinos that's it there's like no black people there's no Asian people it just felt like you know the there was like I could count the number of black kids in my high school in like one hand right um, and that was a high school of 3,300 kids it was like there was holy like, shit yeah, there was yeah. Like, it was a huge school but there was just no real real diversity whatsoever um, so it was helpful for me in that I knew based on living in Saudi Arabia that like the world was very big. Like I had this, I had this understanding of the world that like if you fly 16 hours, you could be in a country where it's like everybody speaks a different language and believes a different religion and like lives their lives differently. So it felt to me always that like Tucson was very small and um, I felt very claustrophobic there, like I need to get out of this place. Um, particularly as I started getting into high school, it's like I, nobody is here is interested in the things that I'm interested in and I just felt very different from, from a lot of my peers. What were you interested in? You know, I was like interested in rap music and like Spike Lee movies and you know, I was, I remember being the only family, like my, my parents took me to do the right thing in the theater in Tucson and there was like I remember nobody being in there and I was like also like eight like I remember like there was no other eight-year-old kids in there <laughs> right but my parents were very serious about like you know we want to expose you to black culture like there's not a lot of black culture in Tucson and so like when there are opportunities to show you this stuff like we want to show you this stuff yeah so I had a lot of really close friends but my friends were like and like I'm not I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna pretend that I wasn't into this stuff but it's like my friends were like punk rock kids who like listened to a lot of like you know, no effects and like Blink-182. And so like I got into that stuff too. And like Propagandi, those were like a bunch of my favorite bands too. But also I was like also looking to like listen to like rap music with black kids. And there's like very few like black kids at like my school. And so I always felt like one day I'm going to like live in Brooklyn. I remember thinking that like when I was like 15, it's like one day I'm going to move to Brooklyn. Like I'm, Spike Lee's Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It's going to, and like life is going to look like, um, life is going to look like do the right thing and life is going to look like uh like you know this it's a tragedy but um god what's the oh jungle fever like it was like that looks right. cool like it looks like a cool city like you walk around there's people who look like me there's people who are like interested in the things that I'm interested in so like Tucson was an incredible place to, like looking back on it in retrospect Tucson was an incredible place to grow up it's I was super into soccer so like I could play soccer year round it was always warm it was always sunny I could always be outside and like playing with my friends um, it wasn't so small 
that there wasn't culture there. there was right. Like, there's well, like a million yeah. people there. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. like a million people there. So like bands come through. There's like museums. There's interesting stuff to do. It never felt. It's it. It always felt like so small when I was a kid. But I remember talking to one of my friends, Ann Friedman. Actually, I worked with it at a uh, good, and she's from um, Iowa. And I remember initially having a conversation one time. We were friends in D.C. And I was like. Yeah, I'm from like a small town in Arizona. I'm from Tucson. And she was like, that's not a small town. And I was like, what are you talking about? Yeah, it is. And she was like, she was like, look up how many people are in Tucson. I looked it up and it was like a million people. And Tucson was like the 32nd biggest city in America. And she was like, I'm from Iowa. She was like, I'm from a town in Iowa with like 5,000 people. Yeah. Like, yo. She was like, she you like burned you. <laughs> yeah. yeah was right she was like, you crowd. idiot. Yeah. She was like, you have no idea what you're talking about. But I realized that the reason I thought it was small is because to me, it just always felt small. Like it always felt like a tiny town. It's not that, like, Scottsdale. Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah, like yeah. there's not, there's like. It it's bigger felt, than Scottsdale. That's the whole point <laughs> it's of this. It's way bigger than Scottsdale. Yeah, it's way bigger than Scottsdale. But it was like, it, but it wasn't like New York or LA. And so to me, anything that was like smaller than those was like a small town. Did you feel at any point that you were destined to go to like University of Arizona or Arizona State? Yeah, I got into both those schools. Congratulations. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Um, solid C plus yeah, address. Yeah, exactly. My friend, some of my friends from Tucson, I used to have a joke that it was like, if you... It was like the application was like on page one of the application was like, do you live in Arizona? And it was like, check yes. It was like, if yes, turn to page six. And you turn to page six and it says, you're in. <laughs> that was, that was, uh, but no, like shout out to U of A and yep. ASU. Like I have a bunch of friends who went there and like have really got really great educations. Yeah. Uh, those are both really good schools. Like Totally. Really, but, yeah. it, but it is in-state. Yeah. It's in-state. You're not exploring. Yeah. And I was like, and so my, you know, my parents weren't like rich people. And so they, like, I remember my mother specifically saying like, uh, it's just like, you know, if I, if I would have gone there, I would have got a free ride to both schools and it would have just been like way easier financially for my family. But I had like a big conversation with them, with my parents, and was just like, listen, I understand what you're saying, but also like, I know that if I stay in Arizona, like I'm not really going to grow. Like I'm going to hang out with my friends, all of whom I love very much, but it's just going to be like, if I live in Tucson, like I'm going to come home and like do my laundry and like I'm going to kick it with all my, all my buddies from high school. And it's like, I just knew that I needed for my own growth and for like to to become the person that I wanted to become, I was I, I sort of said like I need to go away, like far, far away. And so where where was far, far away? I went to William and Mary in Virginia. Yeah. Which is like um, smaller than your high school? Yeah. <laughs> all, not smaller, but but like not much bigger. It's like yeah. a thousand. It's like I think there was when I was there it was like forty three hundred undergrad. Like just tiny. Yeah. Tiny tiny school, and I really in some ways regret going there. I reg- I, I sort of. The reason I went there is because my dad was the first black law student accepted at William & Mary. Wow. So he was like, so the, I'm pretty sure that the the Black Law Students Association has named the W.C. Jefferson Society after him. And so wow. It's like, he was a huge advocate for me going there when I was a kid. And Did you talk to him about how tough that was? No, not really. I mean, I, I think that by the time that I got to college, I was really sort of, and I think maybe it was the fact that I went to William Mary that I felt this way, but I just felt like I don't want to be here. I felt like maybe I don't want to be in college at all. It wasn't. It was like I don't really want. I don't really want to do the things that that my peers do. Like I think that my peers were there to like be lawyers and doctors, and it was like they were there to be professionals. And like I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a professional. I thought that maybe I would have to be because my dad was a lawyer and my mom was an educator, and they'd both both been to grad school. And I was like, I'll probably go to grad school too at some point, but. 
it, I knew that I wasn't passionate about that stuff. I was passionate about writing and I was passionate about making stuff. Um, well, when did you start writing? Started writing in high school. I started, I was, uh, I became an op-ed columnist for my paper when I was, did uh, you have hot takes? Junior. I, um, I didn't have hot takes, but I had, I was like kind of scoldy. Like if I, if I'm looking back, <laughs> looking back at like my earliest things, I, I was like, I can remember, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I remember just like being like very on a high horse, like finger wagging. <laughs> like you guys are like, don't understand what life is all about. And right. Like me, the 17 year old. Like, yeah. I'm like I'm you. listening to no effects. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah exactly. Let me tell you exactly. about, yeah. What's so really know, happening yeah, out know, here. I've been listening to the dead Kennedys. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what the fuck's up. Uh, By the way, I love any high school graduation where like the valedictorian steps up there where the president of the class and they know everything. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> of course. Of course. And that's how I was. Yeah. I was like, this is a very, transitional time for was, all of us i was like, student body vice president okay no like, big deal yeah, yeah i was yeah. like on my i was like i understand everything and like you guys understand nothing <laughs> what were the um, responsibilities so, of the student body vice president oh uh <laughs> oh sorry too, too, too many, many. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah no no god uh, i think like planning the only the only real contribution that i that i think that i made that year was that i tried to get our prom theme to be gorillas in the mist. <laughs> I, wanted it, I wanted it to be like jungle theme. Yeah. And then like all of the chaperones would be in gorilla costumes. And we would be like, it'd be like, we could go there and it would be like tropical and it would be like wild. Uh, but that got shot down and it was like night under the stars or something. Yeah. I so tried to get so Trick Daddy um, to be our like uh, class song. <laughs> I'm a thug, yeah. and um, instead it was Madonna. Like this used to be my playground or something. Yeah. And I was like, this yeah. is such a bummer. Yeah. I tried. I tried with my friends to get the class, the like the class hangout or something like that, to be the Christian Science reading room. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. So I did. I didn't do that. But I, with the class song, I tried to get our graduation song to be wa, to uh, like Whoa, Black Rock. Yeah. Oh my god! Wow, you really did want to be in New York. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wait, jump in forward for a second. Do you remember when uh, the game? Had his first, um, his first like label under his own thing, and it was called Black Wall Street. And the first artist he signed was Juice. No, I don't. Remember. From Arizona. Oh, whoops. Let's Sorry pause this. That. Yeah, can we pause? <laughs> hey, gang, it's Jeff here from the podcast, and Eric is here too. Yo, and we have something special to tell you. Yesterday, we offered up this idea that we've sold our merch to forty-three states and eight countries. Yes. And by the time the 12 days of podcasts are done, we want to fill that out. Jeff, I believe in us. How much progress have we made in the past day? Hold on. Yeah, check the numbers real quick. None. We've made no progress. No progress. Haven't sold to Arkansas. No. Haven't had... sold to Bangladesh. <laughs> Jeff, we had big expectations. <laughs> yeah. I... <laughs> I don't want to disappoint the audience. We have... Our, our entire apartment is filled with merch that we need to send to somewhere. Guys... I, I don't know who's out there in um, China. I, there's 8 billion people in China. But we need to sell these <laughs> t-shirts. So go to itsthereal.com slash shop. Grab one. Grab two. Grab 8 billion. <laughs> itsthereal.com slash shop. And now back to Court Jefferson. So the game has started Black Wall Street, his label, and he signed Juice, who was an artist from Arizona. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. dead serious. And they had a great song. And then now there's uh, these guys, Injury Reserve, who are also from Tucson. And really? they're like popping off. Like they're like at a Rolling Loud festival. Like they're like, they're yeah. doing very well. It's a scene now, man. What yeah. kind of rap music do they do? Uh, sort of like 
young like, people punk <laughs> stuff you know like no like, effects <laughs> no, no i was thinking is it like uh like brock hampton like that kind of it's person? sort of like in that realm that's good to hear yeah totally. i would have loved that one i know i was thinking about tucson that tucson is like, like always i always felt like have you guys ever been to austin texas yes. yes so tucson has an austin vibe and it's always on the cusp of being very very cool like there's a lot of cool people who are from there who do interesting things i think the problem always was that all the cool people that I knew from Tucson always moved away. Mm -hmm. Like, and I really appreciated like my friends and other people who like are really interesting people and doing cool stuff who stayed in Tucson and are just like making Tucson cool. Like, yeah. Or is, keeping Tucson weird. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Not as weird as Austin, but it's like as weird as Tucson can get. How much of your childhood was like the movie Lady Bird? Oh man. You know what? I watched Lady Bird. I put off watching Lady Bird for a long time and I finally watched it on an airplane. And I was like, Oh shit, this feels a lot like Tucson, like Tucson and Sacramento. I think there's a lot of overlap in that bed. So you watched it on an airplane, you know, they say at certain heights, like, your emotions get all out of whack and yeah. so let's say someone like me watches Jerry Maguire and I'm crying on the plane yeah. right yeah just did, like hypothetically yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. did yeah. Lady Bird like hit you like that where you're Lady? just like man nostalgia is just out the roof Lady Bird didn't hit me like that the last movie that hit me like that was um uh The Revenant oh wow I started weeping yeah watching The Revenant it was yeah. crazy I yeah was like, oh this is just like an action movie with Leonardo DiCaprio yeah before. do you <laughs> just started pouring <laughs> it was crazy do you have to explain yourself to the person sitting next to you no I was just like you know whatever <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I just saw somebody was tweeting that The Revenant is a is a Christmas movie. Really? Which I don't see I, how. Around? Is there any Christmas in it? No, there's a bear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I think. Kills it's the like, bear. Just cold, <laughs> yeah. Jeff, spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're when you're at college, are you able to express yourself creatively to a point where you're like, I can see where my future path will take me? Not really. I, I think that college also was a weird spot for me in that it was like an introduction to a whole new kind of white person that was like what college was for me and that it was i had i had never known like east coast wealthy kids mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. who played like lacrosse and had like swoopy haircuts were like from from connecticut had you ever seen meet the parents no. <laughs> <laughs> but that's basically yeah. it right yeah. yeah like it was it was like i knew kids you know tucson's interesting in that it's like you know there's like rich people but it's like you don't have like blue bloods. It's not like families that have been around for generations and that kind of thing. You know what I mean? It was like, you know, it was a lot of like rednecks and like kids in like lifted pickup trucks and stuff. And and then I got to, and then I got to um, William and Mary, and it was just like a lot of kids from Connecticut and New Jersey and like really fancy towns in New York. Yeah, people who like, wear blazers for sport. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly, and like khakis and blue blazers and like that crowd. And not to say that like all of I, I made like really good friends there, and I'm really I'm still really close friends with some of the people that I met there. But it was just like, oh, this is you know, I had friends who were like going to college at, in Phoenix and in L.A. and in New York, and they were having these like crazy cultural experiences. And they're like, there's like millions of people where they are. And then I was in a small ass school with 4,500 kids, most of whom were white, and in a tiny town in Williamsburg, Virginia. Like, oh, I secluded myself even more than I was before. Like, this was, like, in a smaller town than Tucson in a school that was, like, about the same size as my high school. So I was, like... Wait, I what was your dad's experience like at school? My dad's experience was different because he went to graduate school and he also went to graduate school after he was in Vietnam. So he was just basically, like... It's like all of our parents were, like, grown-ass adults by the time they were, like, 26, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, my dad had... My dad had already had my oldest brother and was married and had been to a war 
by the time he went to William and Mary. So he was like, he went there with like a totally different experience where he was like, I'm going to become a lawyer and like I need to find a profession. Yeah. I went there and I was like, I want to like party and be 18 in like a big city and like do all this crazy stuff. And then I got there and I was like, oh, I'm in. <laughs> Colonial Williamsburg, <laughs> not like, as popping you know, as Tucson. City. Yeah, because yeah. Tucson <laughs> is a big city. Exactly, exactly. Not nearly as popping as Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> like I made the step down to a place where there's like candle makers and cobblers. <laughs> like that was my college experience. Truly, is it hard to sort of convince your father, considering like his experiences, what you want to do with your life? Oh yeah, definitely. When when I when I graduated, my dad my dad sort of thought I was going to be a lawyer for a long time. I remember him. And then when I, when I, when he saw that I was like, didn't want to be a lawyer, he was like, maybe you should go to the Peace Corps and like find yourself and figure out what you want to do. Like the Peace Corps is good. It'll get you on the right path. Um, but I was like, I don't want to do that either. And I think that it, for a while, it just, I think that he thought that, and that the writing was going to be like a pipe dream. And he was like, what, well, you know, this is like fine, but like, what do you, I think he was proud of me, but he also, I think he, thought that there was going to be a time when I was like, all right, you got to give this up because there was, you know, I was, I was asking for money from my parents until I was like 28. Mm -hmm. I was, I, I was still getting loans from them until I was like 28 or 29. Yeah. I think that my dad was like, like I said, like he, by the time my dad was like 30, he had two kids, you know, and he was like in a homeowner and like had started his own law firm. Like, I think that he was like, all right, when are you going to stop? Like, messing around and like actually yeah grow up. Like yeah this, this writing has been fun but like is there going to become a time when you, you have a career yeah and so you know now it's like fast forward like things have worked out and i think that he's you know i he's very happy for me now but i think that there was a time when he was like all right this is like when this is enough where did you move after college i moved immediately to la I was like done with the East Coast. I was done with the cold. I had never really experienced winter, winter until I moved to Virginia. And it was like, you know, it was snowy. And I was like, oh, I, I don't like this. <laughs> I, can't, I can't deal with this. I remember the first day I wore, because I was coming from Arizona. So I wore like flip flops and like loafers every day to high school. Like it was, and like, and like maybe like a pair of like sneakers. Like that was. That was my entire shoe game was like sandals and and like low cut and <laughs> like shoes. Yeah. And then when people people were like wearing boots and stuff, I was like, what is all this? <laughs> I was like, you guys were wearing boots and boots. Like, what is? I thought we needed a sweater, a hoodie, maybe. And then uh, so I and I was like, all my friends. It was I sort of had the same feeling that I had about going away to college in Tucson, which was that all my friends in high school. I'm sorry, all my friends from college then were moving to. DC or New York, other big cities on the East Coast, Chicago maybe, and to like do these like you know a lot of them are working at like consultant firms and like law firms and stuff like that, and I was like if I move to DC or New York, I know that I'm just gonna fall in with like my same crew from like college and start seeing all these same people, and I actually want to do something different. So I moved to LA, not really understanding what I was gonna do with my life. I was a sociology major. Doesn't really set you up for. A real career in, a, in anything unless you want to be an academic I just I took sociology because I it sort of I really liked the way that it was helping me learn how to think like mm. I, all the classes were exposing me to all this you know I took like feminism classes and like um, like women's studies classes I mean and and like um, you know international law classes and I was taking stuff about uh, you know like I was learning about poverty and inequality and like racial inequality and like sort of um, 
just all this stuff that I wasn't exposed to really in Arizona because it is like so homogenous and and uh, you know they, it's not the way that people were thinking when I was where when I where I was growing up so I felt like I really liked those classes but I also was like what am I going to do like I, I, I'm not going to be a sociologist I don't want to be a sociologist I don't want to be an academic so I thought that like while I was in college I had started up a, a, a um, a literary magazine with some of my friends and so what was it called it's called Manque. do you know no Manque? it's m-a-n i believe it's m-a-n-q-u-e and it's like uh i believe it's called a post positive which means that like <clears throat> it means uh Manque is like uh like an un- unfulfilled mm-hmm. and so but but it's a post positive and that's like if you were like an unfulfilled poet you'd say like i'm a poet Manque. Mm. and so that was that was like you know I told you man I was pretentious. <laughs> I, told you, I was a pretentious kid. Something tells me you did not belong in Tucson. <laughs> I was a pretentious ass kid. Uh, so, but that was really fun. But but it was sort of I always thought that it, it was just gonna like creative writing was gonna be a hobby for me that I was gonna have to like get like a a real job and then do like some creative writing on the side so you move to the town where uh writing is the main job yeah exactly los angeles what did you want to do you want to write like long form did you want to know what i wanted to do i just knew did you want to be an uber driver but like (laughs) the 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 possibilities just weren't the technology wasn't there honestly i probably would have been an uber driver if i had if, if excuse me if it had existed when i moved out here there was i was like i moved out here with like a very this is like oh man this is like I still deeply regret this. We were here with like a very, very small inheritance from my grandmother. And that basically like allowed me to do nothing for a year when I was first out here. And uh, I lived with a dude who was a producer or like a production assistant at Mad TV. And I spent By the way, such a huge like I mean, uh, really difference between <laughs> producer and production assistant. Oh yeah, exactly. I was gonna say producer, and it's like, oh wait, no. I remember him. Let me like, just go like thirty yeah, ra- thirty yeah, yeah. down the ladder. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I'm, but I used, but here's the thing. I said producer because in my mind I was like, oh yeah, he's a producer. Yeah. And I didn't know anything about Hollywood, so I was like, oh, yeah, he's a producer at Matt TV. I would tell people that all the time. He's a producer, and then I would get there, and he would just be driving people around on a golf cart. Like, like <laughs> I'd see him like dropping people off. And I'd be like, oh, this is what I thought a producer did, but whatever. Still big time. Um, he was in the driver's seat, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so. I kicked it with him and like I didn't I did nothing like I applied to jobs that I was unqualified for in Hollywood and entertainment I sort of I was like oh maybe I should get in entertainment I live in LA now so like why don't I apply to like be like I, there was like a there was like a job listing that went around that one of my friends got because he worked at William Morris um, in the mailroom and then he was like an assistant uh, to one of the one of the um, agents at William Morris and he would send me this like job list and I would like, I would apply to like jobs that I was like crazy unqualified for like producer like, of Matt TV yeah, like, exactly like just like you know, I would apply to producer jobs and I'm like I'm like what is it not, like my roommate does that I like, drive people around on a golf cart like I can do that uh, and I never got anything and I basically squandered all the money that my grandmother had left me did you get any bites within that time though like nothing nothing now, I mean that's not true I got I came the closest I came was to being an assistant to a lawyer at um at NBC and he was like I don't even remember his name right now and I remember him being like I think you're very smart and I think you could be good at this but he but I think he but he said ultimately he was like you 
Like, I don't think this is what you want to do. He was right. He was like, I don't think you want to be a lawyer. Like, I think that you want to be a, a creative person and you should do that. Yeah. Like, he was like, if you if you stick with me, you're not going to, like, learn anything about, like, this industry. You're going to learn how to be a lawyer. So your mindset was just, like, any way in. Yeah. I was like, I'll do anything. But he was right. But I'm happy he did that because it forced me to, like, go do other stuff. Yeah. yeah. It also, me, like, it's just good advice. Yeah, you exactly. Know? Exactly. He forced me to, like, to go do other stuff with my time, which was, I, so... I didn't get that, and I finally was like, okay, I need a job. I can't just, I can't keep like not having a job. I need money for rent, and so I uh, I got a job as as communications director for this very very small nonprofit in Venice Beach that was called Inside Out Community Arts. And what we did was we did um, after school arts programs for at risk youth. So it was like we employed um, a bunch of actors and like theater producers, low level people um, in that world, but who would then go into communities of kids who would like qualified for the program and then like teach them about like how to make a play and how to write a play and how to like set design and direct and produce their own plays. And then the culmination of, of, of that program was at the end of the year, all of the kids would like get together and put on their own plays. Dope. Yeah, it was great. It was like, it was like incredibly like gratifying on an emotional level and spiritual level, but it was like, I made $25,000 a year was my, was, which was like, you know, Obviously, you account for inflation, but I, like even nowadays, that was like, I made twenty five thousand dollars a year, and I had a car, so I was paying for gas, and I had rent, and I still like went out to eat all the time and went out to bars all the time with my friends. I have no idea <laughs> how I pulled it off, but for for whatever reason, it was like, it felt like I was like twenty five grand. That's like a lot of money. And yeah, I remember thinking like that's a good <laughs> amount of money, right? Uh, but I didn't. Uh, I also wasn't like doing anything creative. I was like, I was like, again, like writing on my own time, but I wasn't publishing it anywhere. And so eventually I started like, I showed this dude who worked at Filter Magazine. He was my neighbor in Silver Lake. This guy named Chris Martins. We were at a, we were at a block party for 4th of July and we were both standing around the keg and I was talking to him and he was asking me what I do. And I was like, you know, I work at this nonprofit, but I think that I want to write. It's not really, it's not really fulfilling for me. And he was the editor in chief of this magazine called Filter, this music magazine. It was like uh, it was like this small music magazine based in LA. And he was like, "Well, send me some of your stuff. I I I might be able to like get you get you a job." And so I sent him this like small thing. I was like super into this American Life at the time, mm-hmm. like, and I was like, "Oh man, like that's what I want to do. Like really sort of like emotional, poignant, like personal essay stuff." And so I sent. You should have sent him the monkey stuff. <laughs> yeah, can you even imagine? Like four four page long like like weird poems yeah, like screeds like, on yeah, like that, like one of my fraternity brothers wrote like <laughs> what he's feeling like sad <laughs> uh, yeah that would have really blown away um so i sent him like this i set up this like things these things that i had written like with the hope that they would be like on this american life that was like the dream to me it was like be on this american life and he read it and he was like i like this would you be interested in interviewing this artist so he gave me my first ever my first ever job and i interviewed this alt country artist named Jolie Holland who uh, who had a new album out and I did a small profile of her like I think it was like maybe something like 500 words and I got paid $50 for it and it was like it was like incredible to me I was like holy shit I'm actually I can do this like and so then it just started growing like it started progressing and I started doing more more stuff for like small publications in LA and it felt like it got to a point when I was like okay I feel like I can make the same amount of money doing this as I am making at my day job. 
which was like I was making no real money. So I was like, I can I can make I could probably make twenty five grand a year writing if I want if I did it full time. And I was like, and I actually enjoy it. So why don't I just do that? Because, like I said, the the my day job was like spiritually spiritually gratifying, but it was also, you know, it was mismanaged. It was very small. I was on really the west side. Yeah, <laughs> I was in Venice. And yeah, I literally, was spending an hour and a half like each way, oh. getting there and getting home. I pulled over. I pulled, there was two times that I pulled over to the side of the tent and cried, like in that, in, that, in that two years that I was employed there. To be fair, is it because you were watching <laughs> yeah, Jerry Maguire? Yeah, Jerry Maguire was out. How was it walking in there and telling them you were leaving? It felt really nice because I was also, um, I was also uh, by that time I had, I had started dating my girlfriend who. Uh, was the one who got jo- the job at Juilliard, um, and so I had already had a plan. I was like, I'm going to leave and go to New York and like be a full time writer, and I was really excited by it. So I was like, I'm getting, I'm finally going to have my dream of like living in Brooklyn. I'm going to be like writing, and like I was, I was just excited, and I was excited to leave the job. It was incredible because I was like finally going to be doing what I wanted to do with my life, and so yeah, I, I was like quit, put in my two weeks, and then. She and I moved like a month later, a month after that. Man. Moved to New York. So when you do get to Gawker eventually, when do you really feel like you found your voice? Oh, man, I still don't feel like I found my voice. I, I, feel, I feel like I'm still working on it all the time. I think that Gawker was the first place that let me do whatever I wanted to do. Um, but was that a good thing or a bad thing? Like, do you, Are you somebody who operates well under parameters or no? Yeah, I think that I'm a, I'm a person... I'm a person who operates. Yeah, no, I I operate really well under parameters. I think that I'm a people pleaser. I think that like, I have, for I have like, I work well in envi- You know, I don't know if I work well. I do fine in environments where people say like, this is what you can and can't do. Like I'm I'm able to. If you know, I kept a lot of. I feel like I had a lot of like jobs that I really hated and disagreed with the bosses about it over the years. But I've still kept them because it's like, I'm a good employee. You know what I mean? I think that, but Gawker was a place that to be a good employee it was just like do whatever you want like go crazy like think big whatever you want to do like try it and like they wouldn't say that doesn't mean they just say yes to everything but it was like you know if you have an idea never be afraid to tell us what your idea is if we say no we say no but it might be like we love it and so that especially i mean i guess everybody but aj delario particularly was like Oh, he doesn't believe in rules. <laughs> yeah, no, nothing, nothing. Like nothing. He gets seafood limited. towers for anybody. Like <laughs> exactly. it doesn't. Like, yeah, he does what he wants. Did you yeah. feel like you were a part of something big? Um, because it's such a specific like time and and place. Yeah. that that Gawker. I knew that I was gonna. Be, I knew that I was gonna be part of something uh, interesting and exciting, and that was popular at the time, and that people were talking about. But if you would have asked me that, like, if you would have asked me that it was going to become what it became i would have i would have never guessed that like that it would that it would like explode in this like sort of like really um spectacular way and that it would go down the way that it went down i would have never guessed that um it felt i just knew that like i had worked at a good was very good was a place that it was like very constricting in some ways and like w- wouldn't really let you do whatever you wanted to do and there's a lot of like a lot of interests you were beholden to and a lot of business interests that you were beholden to and, and things that you could and couldn't say. And so when I got to Gawker, that where it was just like, 
it felt like a pirate ship. Like, it yeah. felt like do what you, you know, do what you want to do here. When you were at Good, I saw that you you wrote a thing about how you had turned down in a, a fifteen minute window to interview Bono, and then you had to. Do you remember this at all or no? no. Okay. <laughs> no, but let's go in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so you wrote this thing, and it was about how Bono wanted to talk about his charity, and you were offered 15 minutes, and then yeah. it became 10 minutes, and then it became five minutes. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you were like, well, forget that. Like, I'm not going to, um, you know, do this thing. I'm, and, and you wrote this piece, and it was very Gawker-y, Gawker-like voice. Mm-hmm. And Good offered a correction at the top, being like, well, this person, Cord, <laughs> was not actually cleared to talk to Bono anyway, so like you know, oh, so forget serious? that. Damn. And so like it was they threw under the bus. Yeah, yeah but like it's, that. but that's that's that sounds very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good ask. But like that's the thing where it's just like with Gawker, there would have been no correction. There oh, would have yeah, yeah. they were just like you know middle fingers up, just like fuck this process. Yeah, we're not beholden to anybody. Yeah, and that's what I was. Good, good was like you know, good was a place that um had the intention of like we're out to make the world better we're out to like clean up pollution and we're out to like sort of like end poverty and no you're like, thinking of the peace corps yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, people believe me it made my father very happy uh, uh but at the same time they would like you know it's no secret they would they would like we would have like money coming in from exxon and it's like and pepsico and it's like how do you make a how do you make a thing that's like about like making people healthier from like a corn syrup company and like how do you make like a thing about like making the environment better from like a, a company that like produces manufactures oil and yeah right like, wow like this truth telling is not gonna be good for a good <laughs> stock price you're just like yeah. <laughs> I, I like by the way today's episode of a waste time with this the real is presented by parliament <laughs> uh th- so there was like a lot of stuff that, w- that we would like editorial would like butt heads with business side on stuff a lot. And so when I didn't want to lose my job, I don't think anybody there wanted to lose our jobs. It sucked to be, to be fired. But at the same time, it was like when I got hired at Gawker, it was just like, go crazy. Like say what you want, like piss off the advertisers. We don't care. I was like, Oh wow, <laughs> this is incredible. And I just was like, that's where I, so I feel like, you know, finding your voice is a difficult thing, but I feel like it was the first place that, um, it was the first place that made me like actually explore what I wanted to do without any parameters. It was like, what do I want? Like, what do I want to write about? Like, what does interest me instead of having to like, I feel like be focused on like what other, what my editors wanted. What are some of the most, uh, satisfying and gratifying pieces that you wrote over at Gawker? The one that immediately leaps to mind is, is, uh, is this piece that I wrote after Trayvon Martin, the Trayvon Martin verdict. I think that, that to me was, I had a feeling that George Zimmerman was going to be acquitted. And, and so there was like all this discussion that that uh, the verdict might come out on a Saturday. And Saturday was my friend Tim's birthday. And he was having a, he was having a, um, a birthday party on Catalina Island. And so I told, I was talking with my editors on Friday, John Cook and Tom Skoka. And... I was like, I think he's gonna might be acquitted. I'm gonna I'm gonna write something in event that he's acquitted, so it'll, we'll just have it. Like if he gets acquitted, if he doesn't get acquitted, then like whatever, we can just throw it away. But if he gets acquitted, we can publish it. And so I started writing it on the ferry to Catalina Island, and then I sat on the beach with my laptop and finished it on the beach on Catalina Island while everybody else was like swimming, and I sent it in. Uh, 
was like, here it is. Check, like, check it out. If use it, if it, if if, uh, if the verdict happens, if the verdict happens to to come down on the wrong side, and it did, and he was acquitted, and so we published it like inst like 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 five minutes after the verdict came out, like we they had published on it, and I feel like it was it was the most. I feel like it was one of the one of the uh, you know. Every time you sit down to write something, you have ambition for what it's going to look like and what, how it's going to feel like and what people are going to take from it. And sometimes you miss the mark and sometimes it's not what you envisioned and sometimes it's not people don't respond to it the way that you wanted them to respond to it. Um, and that was like a, that for me was a piece where it was like, oh, this is exactly what I wanted to say, exactly the way that I wanted to say it. And it was like the perfect moment for it to come out. It was like, you know, all the stars aligned in a way that I felt like, oh, this is, this is, this is really, I'm really proud of this. And I think that, you know, Gawker was a place where you have to like think on your feet and like you're constantly writing and like, you know, there's some stuff that, I've wrote, that I wrote for Gawker. I, I can't, off the top of my head, I don't know, but there's some stuff that I wrote for Gawker that I was like looking back on it. Even a day later, I was like, oh, I don't agree with this. I don't like this, but it's like, you know, you got to feed the content beast, man. That's what that's what it's like to that's what it was like to work at that place. I don't think those jobs exist anymore. I was just thinking. I was just thinking the, the, the content like, mills and like with aggregators the, yeah, and the board on the wall and yeah. Like I just feel like I guess like you know R.I.P. Deadspin, um, but I guess and I guess like Jezebel and, and and some of those sites still exist. So that but even those I feel like are less like um, right like bloggy than 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 we were like it was like I, we, I feel like Gawker was legitimately a blog you know and I yeah. feel like a lot of Jezebel now and stuff is like they still do really good work but it feels like you know they're doing real like it's like you know they're like doing journalistic takes on stuff and like deep dives on stuff it's less like you know right this thing happened and then posts. five minutes yeah, later five it's just later, like, like a 200 word post it's just like hey let's like make fun of this and like just tell a couple snarky jokes and then you publish it you know it doesn't feel like that exists anymore was no. that part of your life um something where your parents like understood and liked it and like had whatever google alerts like to see when your post would go up or anything they were proud of me my, i mean my mom and dad were always proud of me and 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 but i think that they didn't really understand what it was you know what i mean like they like they were like okay you work at Gawker, I guess it's good for you. Like we're happy for you. It seems like a lot of people read it, but you know, my mom it was like she was she more was, of a rich Jews we act fan. <laughs> <laughs> my mom probably if she, if she read it, I, I think that if she read, if, I don't think she read anybody but me. But if she did, I think she'd probably be a huge Katie Weaver fan. Yeah. Katie Weaver would have been her favorite. But I think that like if it had a very sort of like. You knew who a Gawker reader was, and my parents were not Gawker readers. Like, they're, my dad, my dad's a Republican, so like he's. Not, I don't think he's like super into like the leftist angry politics of Gawker. And then uh, your dad loved William and Mary. Yeah, oh my God. yeah, it really that was his spot. Man. Leave you me. Uh, conservative Southern school is like yeah, he's all about it. My mom was like she's like a softy, like she's a sweetheart. So I think that like the the sort of meaner stuff, she was always like, oh, that's you know, I guess it's kind of funny, but it's not what I would have said. <laughs> that being how I said, describe the person. I think I think a huge part of your story that we haven't really touched on yet is your relationship with your mother. Mm -hmm. One of your greatest pieces ever was about um, that, and yeah. but I, but I also think that like <clears throat> to your point, I think that your mom, while she may have been a softy, like she had like a hard like you know oh, yeah. backbone like she yeah. she she dealt with a lot yeah she was uh she was a uh like she she was an incredible woman and i think that uh she's like a kind of person who was like you know speak softly but carry a big stick and just like has had a lot of like 
internal strength and like you said like a lot of backbone and was willing to stand up for herself and willing to stand up for people who were not strong um in order to live the life that she wanted in order to live like uh in order to to do the things that she wanted to do and, and in order to sort of stand up for what she believed in and so i think that she was brave and she was like really courageous even though she was like you know she never swore or anything like that it was always like very sort of like soft-spoken and just like gentle and kind and civilized but at the same time like really didn't take people's shit well yeah yeah how hard was it to write that piece it was um it was hard because she was in sort of in the throes of her of her cancer but at the same time it was like it was easy because i was like really proud of her and like really loved her and so it was difficult that she was sick but also like i was really excited to write about her and like tell people about her that's that's um i think that i've since I've since written a couple things since she's died about her that I'm always happy to share because it's like I did a thing for Pop Up Magazine. If you guys do, you guys know what that is? Mm-mm. Pop Up Magazine is this live. It's put on by these people in San Francisco who are all really great um, journalists. Former, well, they're still journalists, and they started this thing called Pop Up Magazine, which is like they hire journalists and performers and other writers and actors and comedians to do a live magazine. Like you basically write. Uh, you write a story and then they put together like 10 or 15 stories and then take them on the road and you just tour tour and do a live show of, wow. like, of magazine pieces. It's really great. Highly like, recommend it. So like the last one and the last one I did in New York was at Lincoln Center. Wow. We do, we do them at the Ace Hotel Theater here in town. Yep. Um, I've done it like all around the country at this point, but it's like really, really good. Like highly recommended if it comes to your town. It's very like I always walk away really, really um, pleased and like happy that I went to see it, even if I'm not in it. Uh, so I, but I did a piece about like her voice and like how what happens like, what the power of the human voice and like what happens when when a person you love's voice goes away, um, and I actually sold it to Invisibilia. That's so you can listen to that on the Invisibilia podcast if you want. But you know, I wrote that and that was also hard because it was like she's dead and and I miss her. But um, at the same time, it's like in the in that piece we play a voicemail that she left me that I still have. And it's the only way I can listen to her voice now is this one voicemail. And, and it's like, you know, my mom's voice now has been, like, played at Lincoln Center. Like, uh, that's, like, you know, that's, like... Pretty special. Really yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, as much as I miss her, it's, like, those opportunities to, like, share what kind of person she was with the world. Is really um, nice. Another fantastic piece that you wrote was about uh, your father and <clears throat> his need to get a new kidney. Yeah. And where that kidney came yeah. from. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I donated my kidney to my dad in 2008. Man, 11 years ago. It's almost 12 years ago at this point. That's crazy. Yeah, I donated. He was, uh, he had, uh, I think it was, I can't remember, stage two or stage three kidney disease. Mm-hmm. He was on dialysis, um, living in Saudi Arabia and was in need of a new kidney. And both my brothers and I all went and got tested um, as to who would be the best donor. And... I think one of my brothers might have been a perfect blood type match for him, which would have been a, maybe an easier donation. But both my brothers also are married with children. And so it, like leaving for like four months would have been harder for them. And so my dad and I don't share a blood type, so it's a little bit harder. But I was also, you know, what did I say? It was 2008. So I was 26. So I was like, yeah, I can go be there with you because I'm not, I mean, I was like, I can, I can take time off and go chill in Saudi Arabia for, because my dad moved back to Saudi Arabia in 2003. Mm. So I was like, yeah, I can come over. So I moved over there for four months, a little over, yeah, a hundred days, basically. I moved over there 
and lived over him while they did like tests to make sure that I would be a good donor and then like prepare for the surgery and then have the surgery and then recovery from the surgery. I was there for like a little over three months and donated my kidney to him. And how did that change you as a person? Um, the, you know, it's, I, it made me feel just like I, like I, uh, it made me just, it made me feel like everybody should give away a kidney. That's because it's like actually pretty easy. Like you're, you're the only kidney that's left grows in size to compensate for your missing kidney. So like, I haven't really had to change anything lifestyle wise. I can't like, play contact sports i can't play football or like box or anything because if you hurt your remaining kidney that's like bad news but <laughs> for the most part it hasn't changed my life at all wait you, this is a real problem now because now people are going to try and box you yeah, exactly. <laughs> people now are going to come up to you yeah, they, they don't know which kidney i gave away so you know i mean it's a 50 50 shot right yeah. yeah yeah <laughs> but it's a real bad defense <laughs> hey you can hit me just don't make you know we don't know you honestly you saved your dad's life yeah, yeah. I mean, he was, he could have lived. That's he, a big deal. <laughs> yeah, he could have. I mean, that's the thing, though. It's like, it's like, you know, I I know certain people have, have, everybody has different relationships with their parents, but I had a good relationship with my parents, and like, it's like my dad. Like, I'm not going to, I'm going to say no. Like, technically, he gave me my kidney, so it's like, right, it's his. <laughs> if he asked for one kidney back, it's like, all right. I don't if think it's the same two, thing, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if he asked for two kidneys, we might have a problem, but he asked for one. It's like, yeah, I can, I can do that. I can spare one. Um, and like, now he's great. He's, he's going to be 78 in wow. 2020. Wow. Yeah, he's like near 80. He's living a, he called me from Paris the other day. She's like, I'm drinking wine. Like, I thank you for your kidney. <laughs> thank you for my kidney sometimes. That's pretty great. That's pretty great. He's having, yeah, he's having a good time. Did either one of those experiences, your mom or your father, lead you to um, L.A. once more? So I moved back here in two, from 2010 to 2014. I moved back to New York in 2014. I moved back here in 2017. Um, and mostly the, it's been sort of like for work. But I think that moving back to L.A. this time is like, experience with my mother has like made me feel you know i was like i wouldn't say distant i've i've like i've i've always had a lot of love for my family but you know since i've been 18 i've just been moving i've just been like all right i'm i'm going away and like i'm i may not see you guys for you know a year at a time i would come home for like christmas or thanksgiving but like i was mostly kind of remote and distant and i think that my mother dying has made me f- sort of reflect on proximity to family and like it's good to like actually be in the same room as people and like embrace them and like spend time with them in a way that like when I was younger it was just like all right I'll call you on Thanksgiving and say what's up but like I don't need to be there in a way that um I feel differently about that now where are your brothers now one of them is still in Tucson and one of them is in Saudi Arabia Mm -hmm. my dad is he so my middle brother is a teacher um he and his wife are both teachers and so my dad found this program where they could like teach at an international school in Saudi Arabia. Mm. And it was like, um, I think it was a financial decision for them. Like it's like they, they, you know, they were both public school teachers in Arizona, which isn't known for like having the best public school system in the world. And they, they don't, they certainly don't pay teachers what they're worth. And so I think that my brother and his wife were like, well, we can get paid way more in Saudi Arabia. So like, let's do that. And so they, and their kids are having, they have three kids and they're like, Two of them are still over there with them, and so the, their two kids are the two kids that are still. One of them just graduated college, but their uh, their other children are like loving it there, and they're like right on. languages. Yeah, they, they're killing it. You write a piece that gets the attention of Chris Hayes. Yeah. You end up on his program on MSNBC. Yeah, and then you get some interest from 
management out here in Los Angeles. Yeah. And how did that change your perspective on what you could get done in the very near future? Yeah, the uh, the Chris Hayes thing, like, it was crazy. That, that blew up in a way that I wasn't expecting. And then, so my manager saw it before he was my manager and asked me to meet up and asked me if I'd ever considered writing for television. I told him I hadn't. I mean, that's not true. I'd, I would always thought that it would be great to write for television, but I also, um, I also was didn't know how to do it. If you don't know somebody who works in TV, it can feel like a very intimidating industry. It's difficult to get into, you know? Um, and so I was like, I would like to do that, but I don't, I don't have any family that worked in it. I don't know how to get into it. And so he was my first ever real like foothold into it. And so I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm interested, but I don't know what to do. And so he told me to write a script. I did it, but just sort of on nights and weekends, I wasn't actually like, doing an earnest. And so I didn't send him the actual draft until January. So we met in July of 2013. Wow. Yeah. We met, and I sent it to, I sent him a draft in January of 2014, finally. And what kind of script was it? It was a drama about a Catholic priest who, um, who, you know, it was like, I was like, I'm writing anti hero stuff. Like, it was like Mad Men, that, that shit. And so, uh, and, you know, my favorite shows were like Mad Men and the Sopranos. Yeah, yeah. And like, all, and like Breaking Bad, all these. And so, how could you like conjure up the idea of a bad Catholic priest? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, I, but see, I wanted to do a different take on it in that, like, he was, because um, I was also interested in, like, my dad is a Vietnam veteran, and so mm-hmm. I'm also interested in, like, veteran stories. And I feel like a lot of people, we st- it's, it's so weird to me that, like, so many of, like, the prestige movies that came out in the past were, like, stories about Vietnam. And I feel like that was, like, really, people did a lot of art about that. And I feel like so many of we I don't think like art or at least Hollywood hasn't really reconciled with with the fact that like all of these people are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. There's in fact still people over there fighting those wars. And I don't think that like our TV shows and movies reflect that in an interesting way to me. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, it was about this Catholic priest who worked as a um, as a military clergy in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then sort of came back from that really haunted by the things that he had done over there and the things that he had seen and participated in. And so he came back from that sort of like with PTSD of his own and was struggling with like that. And so it wasn't just like, I didn't want to just do like naughty priest. Yeah. 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 Or like, or like, you know, Pedophile priest. I wanted to do something that's like pedophile almost. priest is not a good <laughs> title. An no, it's, it's also not an anti-hero. It's just anti. Naughty like, priest is actually to, yeah. you know, tough to make a yeah. pedophile priest heroic. Yeah, not, anyway. I do like the title naughty priest though. I have to say, <laughs> I'm sure it's. I mean, it sounds it, like a good like British like sitcom. Yeah, or, or it's or like Robert De Niro's next. Thing. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's already done like bad grandpa. Or and and the wait. So the manager who reaches out works for Three Arts. Three arts, yeah. And they represent um, lots of serious writers, huh? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, in a way that this, the... But but I, I hadn't signed with him. I, yeah. So I was... We were just like... he. I think he was waiting to see if my first script would be, like, worth signing me. That's what sure. it was. And so I sent it to him, and he was like... Like, two days later, I got an email from this guy, Mike O'Malley, who uh, is an actor slash writer. He was on Guts, on Nick and Lodian. on Guts, exactly. Big yeah. shout out to Guts, man. Yeah. That was yeah. like huge for me. I, I'm surprised you knew Guts. I, was gonna, I thought what? you were going to say Glee. Well, I thought yeah. you were going to say Glee. No. Yeah. 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 When Are you G- look at me, you see <laughs> a huge Glee fan. This is a Not Guts a, household. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Man, I've been profiled so crazy today (laughs) twice. (laughs) He was also the ESPN Boston sports guy, if you remember those. Yeah. Do you remember those old These are the things I honestly had no idea he was on Glee. I want people out there to know. Right. I did not watch And by the way, before this, I thought thought the Boston sports guy was Bill Simmons. But whatever. (laughs) So he, he reaches out. He reaches out and asked me if I had ever considered writing for television. And then he was starting a writer's room and asked me if I wanted to come write for it. And so I emailed Jermaine, my manager, and I was like, yo, who did you show the <laughs> script to? Like I, like, I don't think it's good. Like, you shouldn't be sending it out to people. And he was like, Do you know how managers work? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, but that, no, I want, This is for you. No, yeah. I, I wanted him to, but I was like, I was like, I thought we were going to take a couple passes. You were going to give me notes because I just sent it. I look at that script now, by the way, and I hate it. So I'm mm-hmm. really happy he, he didn't send it. But, um, but I, he was like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh, this dude just asked me to come right for his show. Do you think I should do it? And he was like, he was like, yeah, you should do it. No, he was like, nobody cold calls you to write for a TV show. That's crazy. He was like, that. That's like, I've never heard of that happening. So yes, do it, and then we'll figure out. We'll figure out everything like to do afterward, like after you sign the deal. And I was like, okay, cool. And so I did it. It was like. I was nervous though because I really liked working at Gawker. I thought I was good at my job. I, I was, you know, I, I was getting, I was going to be getting paid less than I was being paid at Gawker because I would, I wouldn't have been in the Writers Guild yet, so there was no minimum for me. Mm-hmm. And so, and there was only thirteen weeks, so it was like a big risk. It was like I'm going to blow up my life for thirteen weeks of work with no guarantee of like work afterward. But I did it um, at Jermaine's behest. I sort of trusted in him and ended up really liking it. And then that show got great reviews. The show got great reviews, yeah. But it was it was it got great reviews. But I was only there for the first thirteen weeks, and then there was no guarantee of a second season after that. Yeah. Right? So it was like, well, I need to go do. And this is Survivor's else. Remorse, by Survivor's the way, which Remorse, is on yeah. Stars. Which was on Stars and produced by LeBron James. Basically yeah. On LeBron James's life. Yeah. Um. So I was like. I'm and now it's on like this. season like six or something. It's right. off. Oh well, whatever. It's done. It was, it was it was on season six. I think it finally. I don't know if Mike just decided he didn't want to do it anymore. It got canceled, but it was on for it had a good run. It was on for like. He's six off seasons. to do Naughty Priest now. <laughs> he's on. He's. Yeah, I mean, if, if he's gonna have that idea. I'm happy to workshop it with him. Let's, let's sit down. We'll develop it, man. Yeah. Um, no, he's on Snowpiercer now. Wow. He's to be on Snowpiercer, which wow. I'm excited about because I love that movie. So I spent like a good seven months looking for another job. And it was like, oh, maybe I'm not. Maybe this was all a dream. And I've only got one job and I'm never going to get another one. Wait, so it really did blow up your life? Like, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I didn't. I was like there was no. Nobody else offered me TV work after that first job. I was doing meetings all around town. But nobody was actually like hiring me for anything. Um, and so I, was, I had turned down three full-time journalism jobs at that point because I, people were like, okay, do you want to come do this? I can't remember exactly what they were, but I was saying no to stuff. And I eventually called Jermaine and I was like, yo, like, let's have a real like serious meeting where it's like you telling me the truth as to whether or not I'm ever going to get a real job again because if not like i can't do this at that point i'd been eating into my savings i was like turning down all this work and in this in the hope that this tv thing was going to pay off and i was like i can't just keep doing it you thought it was you yeah well can i ask like what do you take as the truth at that point like you just you wanted him to just tell you that you were shitty yeah i wanted i wanted him to tell me i wanted him to tell me that like it's not going to happen for you because he you know he knew the industry so what I didn't know is like I didn't know any other TV writers. I didn't hang out with any other TV writers. I didn't hang out with hang out with anybody else in the industry. So what he knew is that like this was not uncommon. I thought that maybe this was uncommon. I thought that maybe other writers like did their first job and then got hired immediately after that and like you you just like had steady work for the rest of your career. But him saying like, "Hey, no, this is just how it works." Yeah. Does that 
resonate with you in any real way it or did. is it just like you're just saying that for whatever reason no it did it did because it wasn't like I trusted in him because it wasn't like he was making money off me. I would have been like more hesitant to trust him if like he he was actually like if I was making him like hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. But like I was making and him none no of it money. was coming to you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like I was making him nothing because I wasn't a working scam. myself. Exactly. Yeah. So I was like, so I was like, okay, this guy doesn't have like a financial interest in me right now because like I'm not shit to him. Like I don't, I'm not earning anything. And so when he was like, no, this is normal. He basically said, like, in so many words, like, you just have to dance for your dinner. Like, this is how it works. Like, every, nobody knows you in this town. Like, people know that you're a journalist, but nobody knows what you do, like, as far as, like, television writing goes. So you just got to go around and meet people. And he was like, I promise you, I think something's going to happen very soon. So just please stick it out with me for a little bit longer. And so I was like, all right. And so, like, two weeks after that, I got a, a meeting with Larry Wilmore, who was still on Blackish at that point, but who was about to move to New York to do the nightly show on Comedy Central. Yeah. And so I met with him and his executive producer, this, this showrunner named Rory Albanese, who had been on The Daily Show. The Daily Show, show yeah. And so um, I met with both of them, and I didn't know it at the time, but I, it turned out I, I became the first writer they hired for that show because they weren't going to take meetings in L.A. They were only going to do meetings in New York because it was going to be based in New York, so they only wanted to meet New York writers. You were the first one. Because mm-hmm. I, was, I was like the only guy they met with in L.A. And so... They were like... Did they get you seafood towers? No. No, man. Rory bought me like a bagel. Iced coffee. But it's all right. Yeah. I mean, it gave me a big job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm all right. I don't need seafood towers. As long as you hire me. Um, That's why I moved back to New York in 2014 was for that job. And so it was like two weeks later and and Jermaine was right. And then I was at Nightly Show for like 17 months. And then I left there because it was like I learned a lot, but it was also exhausting. Like doing a TV show every single day is... It's a grind. Every night. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Every yeah. nightly. Yes. It's a grind. I mean, like you, like it really takes it out of you in a way that I was not expecting. Like, cause you don't tape on Friday, but then Friday you're planning for Monday. And then mm-hmm. it's like, if news breaks over the weekend, you got to talk about it on Sundays. And it's like, if the presidential debates are happening until 1130 PM, you need to take from those, you need to stay up and watch all those debates and then be planning what your debate show is going to look like the next day, like starting at midnight after the debates are over. It's just, it's, it's exhausting. And plus it takes six hours just to get over to the West side. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You know where that, you've been there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so did you stay to the end? No, no, I was there. I left in like, I think it was canceled August of 2016 maybe. And I was there until like, I left in, March of 2016 to go to um, Master Masters of None. Yeah, so I was at Master of None for second season, and then did that, and then I decided I wanted to move back to LA, and I got um, from Master of None. Those guys really spoke highly of Mike Schur, and I was really a fan of what Mike Schur had his career, and so I decided if I ever got an opportunity to meet with him and work with him, I would do that. And so in 2016 and in 2016, I got an interview with him for Good Play season two. And he offered me that job. And so I moved back here in January 2017 to work on Good Place. And how different is that writer's room from anything you'd worked on before? It was just, uh, you know, it was it was very intimidating just because everybody in it is like so, so, so talented. You got like you guys know Mandy is mm-hmm. incredible. Um, Megan Amram is incredible. Jen Stassi is incredible. Mm-hmm. Josh and Dylan are incredible. Like. Um, Dan Schofield's incredible. Like you know, every, name, name yeah. the PAs. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> go to the IMDb people. Everybody who's been on that show is an incredible person, um, and everybody on that show is incredibly talented. And Mike does, really does. 
you know, people say this sometimes, and I don't know that it's true for everyone, but Mike has like a, just a no jerks policy. Like nobody, he doesn't want to work with actors who are dicks. He doesn't want to work with writers who are jerks. And isn't that the way it always should be? You yeah, know? man. I wish I wish that it were. I feel like creative industries, unfortunately, um, I think every industry, unfortunately, but but I feel like in many creative industries, this is particularly prominent. This idea that like creative genius goes hand in hand with being an asshole and like and like being rude to people and and like doing whatever you want to do and like talking to however you want to talk to people and there's just sort of no, no sense of decency because it's like well I'm a genius and I make a, I make you guys a lot of money so I can do whatever I want and Mike is a genius and is so talented and is so successful and he's like never ever like that ever to anybody um, and he and he builds like a, a show around people who are not like that to anybody and it's like it's really admirable to see and um so not to say that I've ever worked in a in an environment where there are like a bunch of assholes but that environment in particular was just like oh everybody's just like super kind and friendly and I was like I was intimidated because you know a bunch of those like a bunch of like Mandy and Statsky and Amram had all come from um, Parks and Rec mm-hmm. like, yeah Mike so like there was a bunch of people there who'd been like working together for years and like a couple of the other writers had like go- gone to college with Mike and so and then was, you like, show up and you're just like yeah well, how do I fit into yeah, and I'm like, hey, this already like, what's up guys yeah, like, yeah I'm, I've only worked on two TV shows <laughs> and, like I hope you like me uh, but everybody was like super welcoming and kind immediately and then did you bring everybody a gift I did not <laughs> yeah everybody uh, um, milk bar cookies yeah. last oh. year that's really nice. That is nice. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't like you showed up with like DVDs of your past work. No. Can you imagine? Yeah. Check it out. I'm a real writer. <laughs> Seafood Towers. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. No, it was uh it was incredible and I like I love all those people to this day. Like I consider them like family at this point. How does Damon Lindelof come into your life? Damien Lindelof came into my life via a uh, dinner party at Mike Schur's house. Wow. Did Mike know that he was setting you up with his... No, yeah. he, didn't. he didn't. I don't think he did at all. I mean, maybe. It was like, he was like, you guys are going to really get it off. Blind, date. blind friend date. Um, but Mike was like having people over to his house and he invited me and Leftovers season three, Leftovers season finale, like series finale had just come out like two weeks before and I was a huge fan of Leftovers. And so I ended up chatting with Damon and uh, was sort of like effusive about how much I loved the season finale. Or the Did he know finale. you? He knew that I, he, he knew that I had like, he knew that you were a person. Place. Yeah. He yeah, knew yeah, I was yeah. Person, but he didn't, we had never met before. Yeah. And we just hit it off at dinner and like found we had the same political interests and the same sort of like um, entertainment interests. And so he also likes the leftovers. Yeah, he, <laughs> yes. Can you believe it? <laughs> well, actually like I probably like the leftovers. More than Damon. Damon is so self-critical. Yeah. And so like, so uh, like such a, such a, a perfectionist that I bet you, I like the leftovers more than Damon likes leftovers. I bet you Damon's still like, ah, that episode's kind of shitty. I'm like, fucked up. And I'd be like, no, it's brilliant. And he's like, oh, I, I would have done this differently. That's very much Damon's attitude. Um, like a month later, he emailed me and asked me, if I would come work on, if I was interested in, in talking about working on Watchmen. And so we, and you were, time. yeah, I was, I had never, I had never read it before, but I knew that it was like a big deal and that people loved it and people whose tastes I really respected loved it. And so we went out to dinner one night and, um, just chatted about the idea and, and hit it off even more. And so I went to work with him on that starting in September of 2017. You've gotten a lot of, um, attention lately, obviously for the episode that you wrote, mm-hmm. um, couple weeks ago yeah and did you have that idea in full 
And was it something that you um, like strongly believed in from the beginning or was it something that you had to see how the season would work and you could fit it in Damon, when it came to you? Damon came in with the idea. We started that. We started the series, working on the series with the idea that Damon had, which is that he wanted Hood of Justice to be black. That was all sort of, he was like, I want Hood of Justice to be a black character and we're going to work backwards from that sort of like central premise. And so the rest of us sort of like started to build out what that might look like and what might lead to that. And the thing that I pitched for, we sort of like needed an inciting incident for like how this character would become Hood of Justice. Like how would Will become this the first superhero? And so to me, when I saw thinking of this as like, okay, this is a black man. And then he wears a noose around his neck like around town and like tries to find justice and like beat people on the streets while wearing a noose. I was like, oh, this is, if this is a black character and like this, then the inciting incident was like racial violence. So like something, something happened to him that he was like, I'm not going to take this anymore. And like, I'm going to, I'm going to take to the streets and like bust heads and like try to, try to find like extra, extra judicial justice. I always try to say that. <laughs> it's stupid to try to say it. It's like, it's better to say it when it's a print publication. <laughs> you shouldn't say it when it's like an actual audio thing yeah. yeah everybody is sitting here just like shaking their heads <laughs> yeah. just like man judging yeah. yeah what gives him the right to say judicial? judicial yeah yeah there you go it's hard, yeah. it's hard. I, I mean you did it about yeah it. you did it like really well that okay, time yeah but this yeah. not was perfect <laughs> we're gonna take that we're gonna edit it in Do the it, first time please. too and yeah. people be like oh he's yeah. what was he wow, talking wow, about he yeah nailed that. he nailed that it's so hard to say <laughs> oh i um, feel like we should just like make you look crazy the entire time <laughs> we should actually use it as a drop throughout Yeah. So it was like, this is a black man who like suffered some like real trauma that like caused him to do this. And so then we started building out the episode from there. That was sort of like the real, once we had that, like that felt like a, like a real central, um, like inciting incident for like us to build on after that. Once it was like in the can and it was going to air, you put out a tweet and it was something to the effect of like, I'm very proud of this. Like, yeah. hope you guys will, that was the night before will it was, watch it. That was the night before it aired, yeah. Not trying to, like, say that we're responsible. <laughs> yeah. But we did fave the tweet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's what... Okay, great. Yeah. I'm but, sure that it was you, then. Yeah. <laughs> but what did you think of, of how you were going to express, like, so much in, in such a small uh, bunch of characters? I'm, like, a, I'm an earnest guy, man. Like, that's that's always... So I think that Twitter has is is hard for me because I I think feel like the the um, default voice on Twitter is irony and um, sort of like sort of uh, wry sort of like sneering jokes and I'm I'm all on board for that I love that stuff but but that's not who I am like I'm not, I'm, a, I'm a sort of particularly earnest guy and so every time that I tweet I'm just like I always think that like should I do something <laughs> like snarky and funny and so, but then it's like no man that's not you like just. Tweet out what you what what how you feel about this, and that's how I felt. Like I, I I was proud of it. I was I feel like the cast and the director were incredible, and I just wanted people to watch it. So it was really um, that wasn't false modesty or anything. It was just I I was actually very nervous with with how it was going to be received. Yeah, I feel like well, yeah that episode takes a lot of big swings. Yeah, it's it's sort of takes a lot of big swings just artistically and visually, but it also takes a lot of big swings with the source material. And yeah. like the source material, that's not what the source that's not what a lot of people walked away from the source material feeling. So I felt I was worried that there's gonna be a lot of people who are super fans of the book who hated the episode. And so that was me just like doing my due diligence and saying like, watch this, please. Like <laughs> I, I wrote it. Like I, I'd be I'd be happy if you watched it, but also like 
after I sent that tweet, I I was in I was in New York. This is when I was in New York. After I sent that tweet, I like spent the rest of the night like not. I didn't watch the episode. I spent the rest of the night with my friend Brian. So didn't see the reaction. Didn't look. Wasn't, wow. Wasn't wasn't. I saw the reaction like. So like, the truth is, I went to see that. Um, that uh, have you guys seen that um, David Byrne Broadway show? No, I, no I've but been seeing no, clips aware of it. Yeah, yeah. It's cool. yeah, it's cool. So we went to see that, and then we went to dinner at Pastis, mm-hmm. and then uh, then we went from Pastis. We went to the Ear Inn. You guys been to the Ear Inn in Tribeca? It's like one of my favorite bars. Mm. Unsure. Right. No, right. okay. I don't think yeah. we've been there. There's like a jazz band in there. Right on. Great. And then we went from there. How to... are you doing more New York things than we do? <laughs> <laughs> we live there. <laughs> yeah, but it's because when you live in New York, you take everything for granted. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. When you, but when you visit, oh. you're like, oh shit, okay. Well, okay. Have you taken the subway cord? <laughs> you know, have you, uh, you know, seen the guy with the cat in his head? <laughs> and then we went to uh, the place Blue Ribbon. Oh, I've yeah, been there. I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're just like you. Yeah. <laughs> so like. I had I had like a couple of martinis to relax my nerves, and then I then I that was like I started looking at the internet around like eleven. Yeah, you ended up in yeah. Times Square yeah. by the tickets <laughs> thing, and just yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's when I allowed myself to see that like what people were saying. Well, and how'd it feel? It felt good, man. I was like, like I said, it was I was incredibly nervous. I was incredibly nervous about how the show was going to be received, but I was particularly nervous about how that episode was going to be received. And seeing, you know, when I watched it. I thought it was special when I when I when I um, but you know, I'm biased and I I, re- I was I was really proud of it, but I didn't I didn't know that that was going to translate. You never like I said, you know, when you when you write something, you have no idea how people are going to receive it. What was the biggest difference between how it was written and how it was shown on screen? I think the the biggest difference that sort of technical brilliance that Stephen Williams, the director, brought to it was was not on the page necessarily. So like we had in there like. We had in there the, that there were going to be transitions that, like Regina would, uh, well, Angela would come in uh, and and replace Will at like certain scenes. But that, like, those where Stephen came in and was doing like the rotating shot around um, Will hugging June, and then like it rotates and it's just like seamlessly, it's Regina there hugging June, and then rotates one more and then it's back to Will. It was like that was all Stephen in there. Like we didn't, we weren't, we weren't pitching or writing, writing into the script anything about about how. I was gonna look. Those moments were gonna look visually. It was. It was. Stephen came in and sort of like did what Stephen does, which is, he's he's like a genius, and, and he sort of figured it out and, and made it made those sort of seamless transitions. Who's somebody who reached out after they watched the episode that you were pretty surprised about? I've gotten emails from um, people from college who I haven't talked to in like twenty years. Wow. Um, have reached out. Yeah, I mean that that, is, that has been the most surprising is that like people I haven't spoken to for twenty years. Like I've gotten. I've gotten nice, nice emails from a lot of different people, and I appreciate all of them. But it's been, you know, I caught up with a friend that I literally haven't spoken to for 20 years. Wow! And we started chatting. It's wild. Yeah, it's been good. You were also uh, a part of Succession. Your father is conservative. Yes. Who does he root for? <laughs> oh man, I, I, that's I, a really good question. I think, that, I think that if he, I think that it's been funny to see. Uh, I think that my my dad is actually a lot like uh, Logan Roy. Okay. Like I think that I actually see a lot of similarities between my dad and He appreciates rap? <laughs> uh no, actually hates rap. But but uh but if but I but I I can totally see him just like sitting there with like a stern face while I do that. <laughs> like I could totally see that. But I think that my dad is um you know, he's like my dad can be a pretty gruff guy and he's like he was always very loving and like supportive of me and like uh, I wouldn't say that he was like Logan and that he was like, 
he was never like um, manipulative and like and like pitting my brothers and I against each other. Like he was always a very loving household, and like he told me he loved me a lot, and like would hug us and kiss us on the cheek. Like he's he's always like a good father, but he's also like you know pretty stern and like he does what he wants to do, and like he's he's like. He's of a certain age. He's like he's almost like I said. He's almost eighty. So like he's got like pretty, um, pretty dated views on like <laughs> on like a lot of like so- social issues. I think and and uh, I love him to death. But like when I watch that show, I'm like, oh yeah, I can see my dad. <laughs> like I, that, my dad's that kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. Where he's like rules with an iron fist. Kind of. Yeah, <laughs> that's him. Does it surprise you that for almost a thousand percent of the shows you worked on, they live in the center of the, the culture? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, that is, I feel like incredibly lucky and, and incredibly grateful. Um, you know, I think that this industry is like partially it's the decisions that you make, but a lot of it is just luck, you know, like there's making a great TV show requires so many people and so many like things to fall into the right place that, you know, it's a bit like alchemy. Like, uh, I think that th- nothing is guaranteed. And so, um, some of it is like, yeah, I'm going to make the decision to work on the show because I think this guy's really smart and talented or I think that I really like this story, but there's no guarantee that all the pieces are going to fall into place and it's going to be good. And so a lot of it's luck. And so I feel incredibly lucky uh, to have worked on the shows that I work on. And I think that, to your point, there's like, there's now, I think, I think seriously, like 700 TV shows on the air, like 700 scripted TV shows, which is crazy. And breaking through is like the biggest thing i think like like actually being on a show that's part of the conversation as you said is very hard i think that like there are a lot of good television shows that i really like that just for whatever reason never break through like for for instance i've been watching halt and catch fire mm-hmm. oh yeah. yeah 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 I totally i think that's a really good show it is a great i feel show. like that was a show that I, like i didn't i feel like is so um, underappreciated in its time because I don't really know anybody who watched it and but the people I do know who watched it are like oh yeah it's great I love yeah. it and like I feel that I felt that way about it I think it's I think it's great and really good but you know for whatever reason it just didn't it didn't catch fire yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> have you ever had something that you were super proud of that just did not get either any reaction or a good reaction the reaction that you were expecting yeah but I think that like this I think that there's a when you, when you write for the internet it's like some stuff takes off and some stuff doesn't take off so there was like I can't name specific things but like there was pieces that I wrote for Gawker that I was like oh this is really good like this will this will be really popular and then just for whatever reason it wasn't um, did you get any pushback on this episode that uh, for Watchmen that that you know because you you said that you had been bracing yourself for people who you know, all these comic book nerds who, like, marry themselves to that, yeah. you know, to, to the source material, and then you I didn't mess say with nerds. It. Don't come after me. No, yeah. Jeff said it. I, I am Jeff said it. Yeah, I didn't say nerds. Yeah, yeah. I didn't I say nerds. I don't want to get fucking flamed by <laughs> yeah. Reddit now. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff said it. That was not me. Cancel me. Come at me. Come at me and cancel me. Um, did anybody come at you and say, this is not what was in those books? I've seen, like, a couple people... Uh, tweet stuff about it, but I try to avoid like reviews, reviews because I think that 
even if it's a so like if it's a bad review it like breaks your heart and it's like i'm the kind of person who will like focus on the one bad review yeah uh, amongst like 50 good reviews and, mm-hmm. I'll, and i'll like just be like well how do i please that person next right time? Or, you are a people pleaser yeah I, exactly i'm yeah. a people pleaser or if it's a really good review then i worry that like next time i sit down and write something i'm going to be like well they really like this thing when i do this and so i should like play more toward that because people said that they like that and so i feel like Either way, your perception about what you should be doing changes in a way, and in a way that I'm like, I should just not read these because it's not good for like my psyche and not good for like what for like the work that I try to do. And so maybe I should just like avoid looking at reviews. And I, I'm happy to like talk with, talk about it with people if like people want to have conversations with me. But as far as like seeking out what everybody's saying about it, I think that like once you start doing that, like down that path lies madness. So mm-hmm. I um I've like seen a couple arguments but not not really anything seriously i've just been sort of i've been sort of happy to hear like people who like talk to me about it and say they really enjoyed it yeah Yeah. i searched for um because if you're not going to search for reviews i might as well and so (laughs) i searched for them and i found like every single one was just like glowingly positive greatest episode of television this year you know like just like that sort of um language i do um want to ask probably my most important question what is the smallest thing on good place that you really fought for that might have been the dumbest argument that you've ever <laughs> like gotten into i i <laughs> i so in my episode this this season um glenn the demon uh comes from the bad place to the good place and tries to rat on michael and he asks for uh you know demons eat weird stuff eat and drink weird stuff and so he asks for a hot glass of pig urine uh, <laughs> to, to sort of quench his thirst and I, I believe this. I believe that the word piss is funnier than urine. <laughs> so I said he should ask for pig piss. It's funnier for him to say that. It's like, you know, it's less clinical. Yeah. It's funnier. It's like kind of dirty. Mm-hmm. You should say like a hot class of pig piss. And Mike, Mike just wasn't happy. Mike was like, we're not putting piss in the script. And I was like, well. I quit. Yeah. Yeah. Look, look, I'm not going to quit because it's the last season. But if, if this weren't the last season, I would think about not coming back. Well, listen, Cord, uh, your your journey has just been incredible. It's been amazing to, to watch and amazing to listen to here. And we're so, so thrilled that you shared your entire, you know, journey from, from pre-K to mon-K with us. So. <laughs> that was off the dome. Yeah. Pre-K to mon-K. Wow. Incredible. And beyond. Uh, thanks so wow. much, Cord. Thank you so much for having me. No doubt. Thanks, everyone, for listening to day number two of the 12 Days of Podcast. Jeff, we have 10 more? 10 more. All right. I checked the board. <laughs> that board is getting some work. If people want to find out more about us, I'm Eric with the curly hair. That's Jeff with the glasses. Together, we are It's the Real. No apostrophe. No spaces. If people want to find out more about this podcast, it's called The Waste of Time with It's the Real. If people want to find out more about what's going on with us, Jeff, where can they go? You can always go to itsthereal.com, I-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-A-L.com. Go there, sign up for our newsletter. Go cop some merch at itsthereal.com slash shop. You can also find our podcast on all streaming platforms. I'm talking about Spotify. I'm talking about YouTube. I'm talking about CastBox. And yes, wherever you're listening to this, that's where we are. Oh, Jeff, what if you want to watch some episodes? Like the Cameron one, or the Jeezy one, or the Rick Ross one? Go to YouTube.com slash It's The Real. But wait, what if you are British and you're used to hearing addresses said in a British accent? YouTube.com slash It's The Real. <laughs> 
And what if people want to find us on social media? Oh, thank God. I thought you were going to have me do more accents. I was like, this is about to get real racist real fast. <laughs> if you want to find us on social media, you can find us at It's The Real on Twitter, at It's The Real on Instagram. Those are the only two social networks that we use. That's right. And uh, elsewhere, I don't know. Find us. Google us. Yeah. I dare you. Wikipedia us. Jeff, we had such a great response to our Cameron episode that we put out yesterday. And people were shocked. Shot and appalled. Appalled that Cameron, Cameron, of all people, didn't believe that dinosaurs existed. So I asked the internet today, I said, if you want to shout out, hit us and let us know what you do not believe in. What, Jeff, do people have to say for themselves? All right. Lil Navex, the Nav fan account that will not stop, <laughs> said, I can't believe Nav isn't on the podcast yet. Same. Same. We tried. <laughs> we really did. Beatmaker from uh, Florida said, I don't believe in paying for followers or any other type of social media influence. Agreed. Born American 18 said, haters. Don't I believe in haters. Do not believe in them. Wait, do we not believe they exist or we don't? Fuck them. Okay. Hen Season said, astrology. You honestly want me to believe Mercury Mercury Retro Days made me cheat on this woman? Come on, man. I love, I love the wordplay. Mercury um, Retro Days. Coldway, who we met down at South by Southwest, said the Earth is flat. Doesn't believe the Earth is flat. Wow. Okay, now here's where it turns left. Yes. Daniel, LPDT991, said squirrel. Don't believe in squirrels. No. Jeff. Yes. As someone who believes in squirrels, tell Daniel what he's missing out on. Don't tell me that I believe in squirrels. I don't believe in squirrels either. (laughs) Daniel and I are riding hard on this. Do not believe in squirrels. Never seen, like, you know how Blue Ivy's never seen a roof in her whole life? I've never seen a squirrel in my whole life. Can't name one. Cisco, Cisco212, Uptown Cisco, said he doesn't believe in the following. Credit. Yeah. Doesn't believe in religion. All right. Doesn't believe in birth control. Great. Doesn't believe in push a T. Well, this is OVO Cisco talking. Wow. Doesn't believe in flu shots. Oh, well, oh. And doesn't believe in asses with high butt cheeks. Come on, man. Them fake. Well, those are a lot of things that he doesn't believe in. I don't believe the children are the future. <laughs> don't teach them well. Let them don't be so Oh, my God. Abu Kal from London Town. Yes. Who needs our prayers more than anybody because oh, rough election. Yeah. Said, doesn't believe in you, you need more people. Not you guys, though. Definitely believe in you guys. The, the, the bigger you. He's saying, I don't believe you, you need more people. Uh, yeah. Rick Da Vinci said, I don't believe in limitations keeping you from achieving your goals, both short-term and long-term. Very inspirational. Rick Da Vinci is an Instagram Unless caption come to life. Unless he's really facetious. In that case, I don't believe in that. Henson also said that he can't prove Deuce was on the moon. He can't prove Wilt had 100 points. He can't prove Jay lost 92 of them things. He can't prove that Ty Ty pepper sprayed uh, Kells. He just knows when he hears some believable or ridiculous shit. Well, and that is why <laughs> we have 10 more episodes on the way. As always, Jeff, not for real, for real. Sure, sure. We'll see you guys tomorrow. Brrrah!